uh, semester, uh, we're going to study Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, as I've really studied this and, and written the studies that, that we have on this, uh, it's become clear to me that from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis right through uh, to the end of the Bible, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And you don't hear that preached in church too much. Uh, and I, I don't think it's uh, an overt thing. I just think it's neglect. Uh, and so we want to be conscious of that, that God has given us the Bible so that we know Jesus. That's why God gave you the Bible. So I want you to reflect on this, that from the beginning of time, before creation even took place, you have the triune God. Uh, and I believe that God, in his foreknowledge, looked at what he was going to create and knew that sin would enter into that creation uh, because he gave his creation free will. God gave us the ability to shake our fist at him. We would never do that. I mean, really, if we were creating a, a creation, if our creation did that, we'd squash him. You know that. We'd squash him. But God doesn't do that. God gives you the chance to reject him. Uh, and it's free will. And he understood from the beginning of time uh, that Satan would be a key malefactor in our, our life. And why did he create Satan? Who knows? Okay? We could speculate. But he did. Satan's a created being. And so here you have God with foreknowledge looking at the creation and understanding that his creation would need a savior. And that's where Jesus stood up. Uh, because Jesus agreed before the foundation of the world, that's what the Bible tells us, to be our savior. Before anything was laid, before a single block was laid in the creation, Jesus agreed to be our savior. That being said, now you understand when the Bible is given to us that it's all about Jesus. It's about all understanding the fact that God had determined that Christ would be our Savior. Um, and so even as uh, the Jewish people understood that there was uh, an original covenant, an old covenant, that God understood that the old covenant would not be what we need. We would not be saved by the Old Covenant. We would be saved by Jesus Christ. No amount of law or legislation would save humanity. God gave us the covenant, the Old Covenant, so that we would come to the determination we need a Savior. We need help. We need you, God. We can't do this. We can't live by the law. Uh, and so you live by the law, you die by the law. But when you live by Christ you will live forever by Christ. Uh, and so that's what this is about. That's what we're focusing on here. Uh, and so we will focus on the fact that the entire Bible, uh, right through the Old Testament, is all about Jesus Christ. And I will show that to you every single week. Uh, and I will send out uh, my sermon notes following every week. I'll send the sermon notes out for you so that you have them. Because I want you to be able to tell other people about this. This isn't just about you getting entertained or getting knowledge. It's about you being prepared to go out in the parking lot, go out in the world, and tell other people about Jesus Christ. 
uh, because they don't know this. They don't know that the Bible is all about Jesus. But now you will, and I want you to be able to do that. Uh, and so Christians who deny, and this, this is a sad fact, that the uh, uh, Bible, that the Old Testament is the inspired word of God, face, frankly, an unsolvable problem. Uh, because the New Testament and the writers there, and Jesus himself, affirm that it is God's inspired word. I want you to understand something. Whenever you read where Jesus said it is said in the scriptures, I don't want you to think that he's referring to the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was no New Testament. It's all about then the Old Testament. It was about the scriptures then uh, being written. And so Christ is affirming the Old Testament. He's affirming uh, that God spoke there. And look what Paul preached uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. All scripture breathed out by God. So when you pick up this book and hold this book, this is the word of God. It is God speaking to you. It is the roadmap to heaven. Here it is. This is the book that will change your life. Yes, God allowed men to write it, but he stood there and held their hands. He stood there and filled their lips with the word of God. Every nuance, every dot, every aspect that's in this book is the word of God. Make no mistake about it. And Jesus made this very clear. Uh, and if you look at Matthew chapter 5, Verse 17, uh, he made it very clear that his intention was to fulfill the law. It's as if Jesus said, I know that, that I have been called to fulfill the law. The law is the old covenant. I intend to fulfill it all. Look at what Jesus says there. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Isn't that amazing? That's Christ saying that. It's amazing because the Pharisees and the scribes uh, all looked at Jesus as if he was looking to destroy the law. He had no intention of destroying the law. He had every intention of fulfilling the law. Uh, and he knew that that was his call. And he, so he's indicating to you that everything in the scripture is valid. And ultimately, everything in the scripture is about him. Now, we've got to dig down. We've got to study it. We have to look at that. Uh, and so scholars agree that when Jesus says there, the law and the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament. Uh, and this becomes a critical study for Christians. Uh, we have to understand that there is one Bible. I laugh when I hear some modern televangelists reject the Old Testament. Folks, there's one Bible. There's one Bible. It may be called the Old Testament and it may be called the New Testament, but there is one Bible written by 
the hand of God. It all comes together. And so we need to understand that, that there is one Bible. We need to know that from the beginning of time, before time was invented, uh, that God determined that Jesus Christ would be needed to sacrifice himself. That, to me, is an astonishing fact. When you think of God being there in the primordial ooze before anything was created and effectively looking in his hands at what would be created, looking at the world as it would be and knowing that this world would fall to Satan, that nonetheless, that Jesus volunteers and and takes the role of being the Savior. Jesus volunteers to go to the cross in order to save humanity. I often uh, read about this. It's almost as if you, uh, a higher uh, being would look down at an ant colony and say, oh, I, I love those ants. I'm going to give my life for those ants. Effectively, that's what's, what's gone on here. I want you to reflect that when you think about the, the sacrifice of Christ. Here he is, the God of the universe, allowing himself to be put on a cross for us. And it all took place before Time began. Uh, And so, as the Old Testament was delivered by the word of God, Jesus effectively sits there almost on every single page. And so many Christians, you see, are ignorant about this. Uh, In theological ignorance, they really are. Uh, And so, as we deliver the message of the gospel, and that's our role to a lost world, uh, we need to tell the whole story. And the whole story is this. Yes, Jesus came to save you, but God did it from the beginning of time. From Genesis to Revelation, every aspect of Scripture is about Christ. And we need to tell that story. And it begins in the Old Testament. Now, salvation history, you see, uh, beginning in the Old Testament, traces its development to the nation of Israel. And, and really relates to God's relationship with Israel as his chosen people. Now, why did God choose Israel? Uh, and this is important for you to understand as well, because God intended that the, uh, the state of Israel would be evangelists, that they would receive Christ and would spread the message of Christ to the, to the entire world. That was the call upon Israel. Now, Jesus walks on stage, and Israel walks off the stage, all right? And they failed miserably. But I want you to know something, that at the end of time, when Christ comes back, Israel will step up. There will will be a residue of Jews that will stand for Jesus Christ, uh, and they will do that. And this is why Israel will never fall. I want you to understand something. It's as if God sits astride Israel. And we'll study that as we go through Jesus in the Old Testament because you will see the covenants that God made with Abraham, uh, who effectively is the father of the Jewish people. The promise to perfect them and lift them up uh, and be with them. And so Israel will never fail. I laugh when I see these uh, reformers or or these, frankly, terrorists out there uh, demonstrating against Israel that Israel would fail. Forget it. They're doomed to fail because God sits astride for Israel. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, this is important to understand this. Uh, And so 
we understand this, that God has used Israel from the beginning. And by the way, let me say this. This is why you better be very careful about expressing anti-Semitic thoughts. This is a serious sin. Jesus was a Jew. Don't ever forget it. Uh, And God chose those people, and they will have a place at the end of time. There's no question about it. Uh, And so God has decided to record his dealings with the chosen people with Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, But it's a story of a love relationship, you see, uh, that includes both obedience and disobedience. Uh, And God corresponds with blessings and with judgment. And all of that is instructive for us today as we learn to live under the precepts of God. You see, God reveals his nature uh, and faithfulness, and he shows us how he does it through time, through thousands of years dealing uh, with Israel. Uh, And so we see how we should develop a relationship with him, how we should walk with him, how we should be obedient to him. And so through the pages of the Old Testament, we can learn. Uh, We can learn to see what the mistakes have been made by other people, by people who, who were chosen. And so by seeing God's interaction with his people, we can better understand the very character of God and our own character. We discover that despite the Israelites' persistence uh, in disobedience, God refuses to give up on them and patiently brings them to spiritual maturity. He will do the same for you today. You know, one of the things that always amazed me is that here they are, the Jews are in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. They're in the brick pits, right? They're there. They have no rights. Uh, And God sends Moses to deliver them and to bring them out uh, of this abusive relationship. And here he does. He brings them out, right? He brings them out. And within a couple of weeks of bringing them out, they start complaining. Oh. I wish we were back in Egypt. Oh, the food was good. We had a roof over our head. Of course, we forgot about the whippings, about the killings, about the abuse. Now think about God, what I've just done. I've brought you out of captivity. How would we react? I could tell you how we'd react. We would destroy the people and start all over with Moses. And God made that proposal to Moses. And Moses said, no, don't do that. The people will say terrible things about you, God. Don't do that. Can you imagine? Because I know what I would say. Yeah, do it. Let's start. Let's start all over again. I'm sick of hearing the complaints. You're sick of hearing the complaints. How'd you like to be God? You ever think about that? How'd you like to be God? I've done this for you. I've blessed you. And you see, that's how we are today. God has blessed us in so many ways, and yet one little thing may not go our way. And what? We start complaining. And God is teaching us an important lesson here. God refuses to give up on us. And here's the point of all this, that when you are saved, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you make that decision, he takes you and he holds you in his hand. And nothing, no power, no act of stupidity on your part will take you out of the hand of God. All right? I want you to understand that. What a glorious thing that is. And the point of it is, you didn't climb into his hand. 
He embraced you in his hand. He gave you the faith that you needed in order to be in his hand. So if he embraced you and took you in his hand, what makes you think you can wiggle out of his hand? You cannot. And so he will judge you. He may punish you. He, he may diminish you, but he will keep you in his hand. And so as we understand this, we recognize that the Bible is Christ and Christ is the Bible. This is why we study the Bible. We study it not to be intellectually curious, although that's certainly a part of it, but we study it because it's about the word of God, about God himself. How will we know how God is unless we study the Bible? Uh, and so it's overwhelming. The evidence is overwhelming from beginning to end that it's all about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focal point of all history, prophecy, and typology. And I would say this to you. If anybody asks you what your worldview is, your answer should be Jesus Christ. My worldview is Jesus Christ. Everything that I look at in the prism of this world looks through the filtering lens of Christ. And certainly when Christ explains to the Emmaus disciples, and we're going to talk about that, how the Old Testament points to him, uh, he does far more than just unveil the messianic prophecies. Uh, he does far more than that. But he reveals himself to these disciples as, it re as it's revealed through the Old Testament running an encompassing picture from Genesis right to the end. The unifying theme, the unifying theme of Scripture uh, is this, the promise of a coming Messiah uh, who would bless all mankind uh, through his gift of salvation. Uh, and so we have to look at that. And probably the most incredible thing to see that and to see Jesus in person as he talks about it is to look at Luke 24, verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. This is all about preparing us to understand what the Old Testament is about. <clears throat> now, this is a great passage, and I'm hoping that when I get to heaven, that they have a videotape of this. Because it must be one of the great sermons of all time. Uh, and here you see Jesus on the third day after the crucifixion meeting up with two disciples who were traveling, walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I actually went on that road and I got off at Emmaus. There's really nothing there at Emmaus now except a, an old, old church about a thousand years old. You just see its foundations. But this was the place where they were headed. And so knowing that this, this takes place, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, uh, theologians believe that Jesus walked on the road with them probably about four or five hours and then had dinner with them. So imagine having Jesus have the floor nonstop for four or five hours in which now he's going to tell you what the entire Old Testament is about. Would you like to see that? I sure would. So let's read along. Luke 24, verse 13. <clears throat> Now, that same day, two of them, as the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed this th these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept 
from recognizing him. I want you to understand this. This is the third day. Jesus is resurrected this day. <clears throat> but he's hidden his identity from them. Uh, and so he asked them, verse 17, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Well, of course, he knew what they were discussing, but he wanted them to talk. One of the things you see about Jesus is Jesus wants you to open up. He asks questions. He wants to hear what's troubling you, what's bothering you. And we need to know that as we spread the gospel. You need to ask questions uh, when you talk to people about Jesus. You don't just start giving them chapter and verse. You want to know where their heart is. How's your spiritual life? How are things working out for you? You need to hear that. Uh, And so he says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Their faces downcast. Can you imagine what they had to be like? Their entire world had collapsed. Everything that they had hoped and dreamed of had collapsed. One of them named Cleopas asked them, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I love that. Are you the only one? You? You don't have any idea what took place? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, underlying that, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. But they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. One of the things I love about Jesus, he's never politically correct. You like that? You know, we might have said, oh, well, I'm sorry that you don't seem to understand it. Let me try to address it. Now, Jesus says, how foolish you are and how slow you are to believe everything that's been written, what all the prophets had spoken about. Verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. That's the videotape I want to see. I want to see Jesus deliver what I'm trying to deliver in a far less articulate way. What what God himself says about the purpose of the Bible. He sat there and opened the Bible. Now you can imagine walking along, walking along. And your world has been destroyed. And now suddenly this stranger comes to you and opens up the Bible and tells you everything about the guy who died on the cross and how you were so wrong about what you thought was coming down, about who he is, how God had predestined all this to take place and that it was all about him. And so after going several hours along the way, as they, verse 28 says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. And that's how Christ is. You understand? He doesn't force himself on us. Jesus doesn't say, you have to take me. No, 
you, you don't have to take me. I'm going to continue on. No, 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 don't go. No, don't go. And that's how we should be. No, Lord, don't leave me. Be with me. Uh, but they urged him, verse 29, they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. What a great story of God of the universe meeting and talking to people who are just de- devoid of hope, destitute, as, as their, the very reason for their living had just been destroyed. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. I'm sure that this had to be, be very reminiscent of the Last Supper. And I'm sure Jesus took the loaf of bread and broke the bread. And in a very active way that he broke the bread, their eyes were opened immediately. It says in verse 31, Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. How about that? They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they went back to tell the other disciples about what they had seen. Did not our hearts burn when he was with us? And I hope this morning as you're here that in in a much less intensive way that your heart begins to burn as I open this up and speak to you. As you understand what God has for you, how he's speaking truth into your heart, how he wants you to understand this and deliver this message to a lost world. And there it is, Jesus showing them from Genesis right through From Moses through the prophets, it's all about him. This is why God gave you the Bible, to understand who Jesus Christ is. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. This is the living word of God about what his intention is for you and for humanity. And so as we examine in depth, really, uh, the work of God this semester, we see that the promised plan of God is God's work of declaration. And the declaration is Jesus Christ uh, is the Messiah, beginning with Eve in the Garden of Eden uh, and continuing on through history, including the patriarchs. And David, you will see that everything is about Jesus Christ. Scripture is tied together on the promise that God will provide a Messiah to his people. And he did. God will offer all of mankind redemption. And he did. Uh, And so while there are many links to Christ in the Old Testament, they can all be understood in the context of God's promise of the Messiah. I am sending you a redeemer. And his name is Jesus. Now, God's promise, really, of a Messiah to mankind begins in the Garden of Eden, when he assures Adam and Eve that Eve's seed would crush Satan's head, head in Genesis chapter 3. This is the first messianic prophecy and the first announcement of the gospel, you see. Uh, as scripture unfolds from there uh, and, and, and continues to renew and amplify the promise of God about the Messiah, Uh, And it includes his covenants. Now, let's understand what a covenant is. There are a number of covenants that God makes with mankind. It is God's promise to man as to what he will do. 
God's promise. And his promises are immutable, unchangeable, forever, in every way. And there are a number of those in the Old Testament. God renews and expands on the promise at the Garden of Eden uh, when he tells Abraham, uh, among other things, that he will make him a great nation. Now, when he says to Abraham he will make him a great nation, does that mean that all Jews are going to be great? Well, of course not. Of course not. But it means that from Abraham will come Jesus. And from Jesus, all things will become great. And he will bless all people and all nations through Jesus Christ. He will then set Israel apart as a holy nation because the Messiah would come from Israel. And that's important to understand this, that even as we see uh, Israel doing things that may not really be in the way of God, God is judging them and using them. And I told you that at the end of time, Israel will stand. Nothing that will happen to Israel will destroy Israel. It's all a waste of hot air when you hear people talk about uh, what they want to do to Israel and destroy Israel. It will not happen. And make sure that you're on the right side on that issue. And so God uh, provides a series of covenants with man in the Old Testament, and it's the means by which his sovereign work is performed uh, for redemption. The redemption plan of God is carried through his covenants. A review of salvation history, and that's what you need to do as you understand the Old Testament, involves God's covenant dealings with man. The term covenant generally means a binding commitment agreed upon through negotiation between two or more autonomous parties. But that's not what happens with God's covenants. There's no negotiations. It's not two parts. It's God reaching across eternity and saying, I will do this for you. Uh, and a covenant, really, between God and man is an unchangeable divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that controls the relationship of man to God. God's commitments in his covenants with men are generally in the form of his blessings and his curses. And make no mistake about it, when God gives you a covenant of blessing, there's also a covenant of cursing. And you see it. You see it when Israel did not live up to what God expected them to do, that they were taken into captivity. God allowed Babylon to come in and take uh, Israel captivity, and they were captive really for several hundred years. Uh, and so if you look at uh, one of the first covenants that God makes, uh, you'll see it in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. Um, and this is the Abrahamic covenant. And so here you begin to see uh, the Old Testament take the form of Jesus Christ. And there it says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. How about that? I've just gotten you and taken you out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of this land of the pagans. You have followed me and now I will establish my covenant with you because of your obedience, because of the plans that I have for you. Uh, and you and your descendants after you uh, will be 
bought my servants and I will be your God. And that included the fact that Jesus Christ would come from the seed of Abraham. What a great promise, you see, how God really lifted up the Jewish people. Now, critically, every biblical covenant ultimates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every single covenant ultimately is about Christ. It's about Christ, and we'll study that. Indeed, the obligations of both parties under each covenant, God and man, point to Jesus. Point to Jesus. God's promises and blessings contained in these covenants, even if they involve other people or events, all point to Jesus Christ. They all do. Uh, He is the ultimate fulfillment of every covenant, and he is the source of all final blessings. And so an historical examination of the Bible's major covenants begins with God's charge to Adam in the garden to be fruitful and to multiply, and his permission from Adam to eat from every tree in the garden except one, because if he eats from that one tree, he will die. He's not destined to die. He's destined to live forever. That's the promise. And he will live forever if he, gave, if he lifted up to the covenant that God had gave him. But he did not. Uh, and so this promise that God would, would bless him, that he would be fruitful and multiply, is known as the Edenic, E-D-E-N-I-C, Edenic Covenant. Um, God's implied promise of life and blessing is conditional. I will do this if you obey me. But if you do not obey me, you will forfeit those blessings. And the story of humanity could have ended there. And I would say that if you were in charge, most likely you would have pulled the plug. Am I saying something untoward? I mean, this is your creation. You put him in this idyllic place. You give him everything that he needs. You tell him he will live forever. You tell him that he will be blessed forever. And he can have everything in the garden except one thing. One thing. And it's like an arrow. It's like going to a restaurant, you know, and they serve you a dish and they say, don't touch it, it's hot. What do you do? How hot is that? It's not that hot. It's like you're almost wired to go against God. You understand? And so shortly after God puts them there, they defy God. Oh, they had help. They had help. But I believe they they would have found their way into disobedience even without the serpent. Honestly, I really believe that. Uh, And so they shortly disobey. They eat the fruit of the tree and everything collapses around them. And I'd say if we were God, we'd say it's over. Boom. I'll start again. Obviously, I'm going to I'm going to reinvent these people. You know what God did with the angels when the angels fell? uh, God and you know that Satan took one third of the angels in revolt and they were sent to earth. God then removed the ability for angels to sin. Uh, in the beginning, angels had the right and free determination to sin, but God changed all that. And frankly, God could have done that with us, but he didn't. Why? Because God wanted to see true love and obedience. He wanted to create a creation that had every authority to shake its fist at him, 
but instead embraces him. And they say in verses, other verses in the Bible that I don't have immediately here, that the angels are astounded when they look at men. They look down at this and they see men, and they know how men are, who come together to worship God. They are astounded that men would worship and submit to God. And that's what God wants. He wants to use you and show you to the world. He wants to show the angels this is what my creation can be. Uh, and so now you see the, one of the first covenants, right after the Edenic covenant that mankind has failed. Uh, now he gives the Adamic covenant, A-D-A-M-I-C. This is found in Genesis 3, verse 15. This becomes effectively the first prophecy of Christ. And so if you want to know where it all begins about Jesus Christ, here it is. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And God said, and I will put enmity. He's now speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let's unpack this. What is God saying there? <clears throat> He's saying that there will be eternal enmity. There will be eternal hatred, uh, eternal adversarialness between Satan and his demon offspring and mankind, the woman, and between your offspring, his demonic offspring, and hers. He, speaking of Jesus now, this is about Jesus, he will crush your head. He'll crush your head, meaning what? He's going to destroy you. He will eliminate you. You will die by this act. The Messiah will destroy you. But, 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 you, you will strike his heel. You will inflict pain. You will inflict suffering. Yes, and we know that all happened as Jesus goes to the cross. And you can imagine the demonic legion sitting there and unleashing everything that they can to destroy Jesus Christ in every possible way. And so here it is. Here is the first prophecy in the Bible about Jesus Christ. Uh, and so uh, it begins, and we understand. There it is in Genesis, right from the very beginning. We understand that, that God is telling us that a Messiah will come. Now, the next covenant that we come across accompanies God's judgment of the flood against man's pervasive wickedness, whereby he promises Noah uh, that he will preserve humanity. And now we have the Noahic, N-O-A-H-I-C, covenant. That's found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. And here God says, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wife with you. Understand this. Here, the ark is the representation of Jesus Christ. There it is. The ark symbolizes Christ. You will only be saved by, from death by going into the, the ark. 
The ark will save you from destruction. Can you imagine how evil the world had become where God says, that's it, that's it. I'm wiping it out. I'm starting all over again. I'll start with you, Noah. Uh, And so God becomes even more specific, more specific in his next covenant when he calls Abraham to leave his homeland of the earth of the Chaldeans. And that effectively is in current day Iraq. Uh, And it was a pagan area. They worshipped pagan gods. They didn't know Jehovah. But God appeared to Abraham and gave him a vision and called him to leave his people. Uh, And he demonstrated that he would give him a land and show him Canaan. This is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. This is a pivotal moment uh, in God's salvation history uh, as it becomes grounded in a covenant. Uh, Subsequently, through the Palestinian covenant, God reaffirms the land promise of the Abrahamic covenant. In the Palestinian covenant, God tells him, this is all going to be your land. And by the way, if you're a, a historical theologian and you study it, uh, and I've studied it, the land far exceeds where current Israel is. The land includes areas of Jordan, Iraq, Iran. It includes a vast amount of land that God gave to Abraham. Now, I don't know what that means, uh, but all I know is this. They're not going to take him from the river to the sea. You know, when I hear that, from the river to the sea, well, that's a pipe dream, all right? Because God's made his promise very clear uh, and, and has promised his covenants. And so here you see it uh, through the Abrahamic covenant uh, and then uh, through the Palestinian covenant telling him where his land will be. Uh, and subsequently through the Palestinian covenant, God reaffirms the land promise made to Abraham. The Palestinian covenant emphasizes the importance of the land in relation to Israel. It's critical. God gave you that land. That's part of the promise of God. The land is part of the promise. That's why no act of humanity can take Israel out of that. I want to assure you that. I don't even have to listen to the news. I don't need the news to tell me that. I read it in the Bible 5,000 years ago. All right? I know what's truth, and that's what's truth. Uh, And so you see this. Finally, God introduces the last covenant, uh, the new covenant, to Jeremiah. To Jeremiah, telling him that one day... He will replace the old covenant, that's the Mosaic covenant, uh, with a better one that will bring far greater blessing. Uh, And you can see the citation of that if you look at Hebrews uh, chapter 8, Hebrew 8, verses 6 to 8. And there it talks about the new covenant. And there it says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Understand this. Make no mistake about it. The new covenant through Christ Jesus exceeds and is superior to the covenant that God gave to Moses. Because what God gave to Moses required your ability to submit and obey the law, the Ten Commandments. Guess what? You lose. You can't do it. You can't live to the commandments. You can't follow God's word because you're doomed to fail. Only when you have attached yourself to the body of Christ, 
uh, that you have the grace of Jesus being with you, can you live under God's authority? And that is the new covenant. Uh, and it says here uh, that Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. On better promises. You'll live forever. All you have to do is believe on Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about following every single letter of the law. Following Jesus fulfills all the letters of the law. Continuing there in that, in that passage, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and this is important, the days are coming. This comes, this is a citation out of Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will make a new covenant. I will give them a new promise. It will be led by a Messiah. And there you see everything about Jesus Christ coming into focus. And so as we examine uh, the first covenant of God that made with man, it is fascinating that while Satan does cause Christ to suffer, even physical death, uh, he only succeeds in injuring Jesus because Christ allows him to do so. Make no mistake about this. Christ allowed Satan to be able to do what he did. All right? Christ allowed it. Christ could have destroyed uh, Satan, but Christ allowed him uh, to be used by whatever will God had in that regard. Uh, and, And the reason that Christ did that is he loves us. He loves us, and he wants to show you what happens when you attach yourself to him. You will succeed and be able to handle Satan. Now, I preached this yesterday uh, in church at the Naples gathering, and I would commend it to you if you get a chance. Go online and, and listen to it. It talks about spiritual warfare, that we're fighting Satan, that he's an incredibly powerful, cunning, deceitful, entity, and that you cannot succeed unless you're attached to the body of Christ. It's only through the Holy Spirit that you can fight him. You can't fight him on your own. And Jesus proved it to us uh, at the cross uh, and allows punishment to be inflicted on him, on himself, in order to redeem us from sins. Uh, It is ironic that Jesus uses that same suffering on us to give us life. It is that suffering That death which gives us life. So not only is Satan's bruising of Christ non-fatal, as we learned about it in Genesis, uh, but in a permanent sense, that bruising leads to our own redemption. Uh, And it illustrates really how lopsided this battle will be. When you're attached to Jesus Christ, you win. If you walk away from Jesus Christ and say, I can do it on your own, you lose. It's black and white. There's no gray. Uh, And so Christ becomes man for the express purpose of defeating Satan, sin, and death, and to redeem us with the gift of life. That's what the Bible is all about. That's what we will study this semester. That's what God intends for you to know. That's 
what God wants you to do to leave here and to go out into the world and be able to give that message to the lost. Amen? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the words that you have given us. Father, I ask that the words resonate in our heart and that we have a greater understanding of the Bible and what you promised us in every way. Bless our men. Protect them, Lord, and bring them back safely to continue the study next week as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. Bye-bye.